Hello, welcome to Bygone Tales. Thank you for tuning in this evening. My name is Sean, and I'll be your host. I guess the first thing I should explain is why I'm doing this. Really, what it comes down to, uh, I like to read, but uh, in our busy lives, it's hard to carve out any time for, for pastimes like reading. So I figured by doing this podcast, uh, which was going to involve a lot of reading, it would give me an opportunity to read, and I could call it research. Also, um, being an avid reader, I, I always want to share what I'm reading with other people. And frankly, I was getting tired of trying to convince people to read this short story or that short story. So I decided that I would just read the material to you. Now, some people might, might ask what it, what it is I hope to achieve with, uh, with a podcast like this. You know, really, uh, I, I, I'd like to make sure that, uh, that some of these authors don't, uh, don't pass to the wayside. You know, most, most people know who Edgar Allan Poe is. Uh, a lot of people know who uh, Jules Verne or H.G. Wells or H.P. Lovecraft is, but... You know, maybe not everybody knows who William Hope Hodgson or M.R. James or E.F. Benson. So, uh, you know, I'd like to expose people to some of their writing. Um, you know, it's writing that I, I tend to enjoy. Um, and also, uh, a lot of these authors, uh, and, and in fact all of the authors that will be um, highlighted in this, uh, in this podcast, wrote during a... During a time period where, to say the least, um, a lot of the opinions held by uh, by by people were not um, were not very politic, and uh, you know it's it's maybe not a bad idea to uh, to open up this this fact for conversation, and and maybe this uh, this podcast will help with that. Who knows? Ultimately, I would like to air an episode approximately every two weeks. Um, I'd like to try and, and put them up on a, on a Monday. Uh, I'd like to provide about an hour of material uh, with each recording. I figure that will probably come out to between one and three stories per episode. Um, depending on the author, I can, I can get in the neighborhood of 30 pages um, uh, read out loud in, in that time period. Some authors may really stretch that. Who knows? Maybe if uh, if you guys like what I'm doing, then uh, then we can extend the amount of time or how often uh, these these episodes come out. I'm sure at this point you guys are tired of listening to me rattle on aimlessly. So uh, I guess let's get on with the uh, let's get on with the stories, okay? All right. Well, here we go. Uh, first story tonight is uh, is by H.P. Lovecraft. I hope you enjoy. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon odd watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. 
such a lot the gods gave to me, to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those sear memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages, and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere, as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself, or anything alive, but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of something mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that stowed some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundation. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me and I do not recall hearing a human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark, mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forest. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back, lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So, through endless twilights, I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. At last, I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, 
since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight, I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased, and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined and deserted, and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress. For climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill as of a haunted and venerable mold assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure that I might peer out and above to try and judge the height I had attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing and I knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head, as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for the nonce ended. Since the slab was the trap door of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty, capacious observation chamber, I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the later attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, but hoped, when necessary, to pry it open again. Believing I was now at a prodigious height far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and the stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed since all that I found were vast shelves of marble bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment so many aeons cut off from the castle below. Then, unexpectedly, my hands came upon a doorway, where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked, but with a supreme burst of strength I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known, for shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway was the radiant, full moon, which I had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions I dared not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble. 
and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demonical of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on a level through the grating nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at all cost. I knew not who I was, or what I was, or what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along, I became conscious of a kind of fearsome latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch, out of that region of slabs and columns, and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar, yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed, with chief interest and delight, were the open windows." gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never seemingly heard human speech before and could guess only vaguely at what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredible remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill, 
when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection, the room seemed deserted. But when I moved toward one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there, a hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly. And then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause, I beheld in full, frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint at what it was like, for it was compounded of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and desolation, the putrid, dipping eidolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort toward flight, a backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred, and showed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance, so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing, whose hideous, hollow breathing I half-fancied I could hear. Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close. Yet in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident, my fingers touched the rotting, outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek. But all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single and fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second 
all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is Nepenthe. In the supreme horror of that second I forgot what had horrified me, and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream I fled from that haunted and accursed pile, and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, I found the stone trap-door immovable. But I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nephron Ka in the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Nitorchris beneath the great pyramid. Yet in my new wildness and freedom I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. For although Nepenthe has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century, and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. All right, that was The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, a little bit of information about the story. Uh, that, was, that was written in, uh, in 1921. Uh, it was actually published in 1926 uh, in Weird Tales. Uh, Lovecraft himself actually claimed the inspiration for the story uh, as as Edgar Allan Poe, uh, who was who was really one of his uh, one of his big idols. And it 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 carries uh, some themes that are um, noticeable in some of the Edgar Allan Poe stories. Um, it's it's certainly credited by. Uh, by a lot of authorities, with uh, with bringing up themes of loneliness, the the abhuman, and and the afterlife. But uh, personally, I just think it's a cool story. Um, it's always been one of my one of my uh, top, I'd, I'd say top ten stories from H.P. Lovecraft. And it's a uh, it, it's a pretty um, pretty commonly anthologized story of his. Uh, you'll find it in a lot of his uh, best of collections. All right, so enough of that. Uh, how about we get on to story number two? This is a story by Ambrose Bierce, one of my favorite authors. And this is one that will probably be familiar to, uh, to a lot of people. I'm sure just about everybody was supposed to read this at some point in school, although I'm sure a lot of people uh, found ways around that or just didn't. Um, so here we go. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce 1. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back. 
the wrists bound by cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross-timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the sleepers supporting the metals of the railway supplied the footing for him and his executioners. Two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff, at a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest, a formal and unnatural position enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight around into the forest for a hundred yards, then curving was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost further along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle acclivity, topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway of the slope between bridge and fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line, at parade rest, the butts of the rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels, facing the banks of the stream, might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray, and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn 
moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the later would step aside. The plank would tilt, and the condemned man would go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move! What a sluggish stream! He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was a sound which he could neither ignore nor understand, a sharp, distinct, metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby, it seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each stroke with impatience, and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer, the delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ears like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods, and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invader's furthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. 2. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with the gallant army that had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, 
would come as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake, if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier, and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a gray-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Miss Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. "'The Yanks are repairing the railroads,' said the man, "'and are getting ready for another advance. "'They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, "'and built a stockade on the north bank. "'The Commandant has issued an order which is posted everywhere, "'declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, "'its bridges, tunnels, or trains will be summarily hanged.' I saw the order. How far is it to Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the, on the railroad and a single sentinel at this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry and would burn like tow. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. 3. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this state he was awakened ages later, it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agony seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification, and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion, these sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion. Encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heart, without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then, all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud plash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. 
He knew that the rope had broken and that he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river. The idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew he was rising toward the surface, knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist appraised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent! What superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavor! Bravo! The cord fell away. His arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest, as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back, put it back, he thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire. His heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out of his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish, but his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick, downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and, with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draught of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf, saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, 
the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly, he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye, and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half-round. He was again looking into the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and piteously, with what an even, calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured intervals fell those cruel words, Attention, company. Shoulder arms. Ready. Aim. Fire. Farquhar dived. Dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara. Yet he heard the dulled thunder of the volley, and, rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that marionette's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling plash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound. Diminuendo which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its depths. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, 
He heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will appraise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled around and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forests, the now distant bridge, fort and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only. Circular, horizontal streaks of color, that was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments, he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange rosette light shone through the spaces among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of alien harps. He had no wish to perfect his escape, was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and rattle of grapeshot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall he was fatigued, footsore, famishing. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through the rift in the wood, shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once, twice, and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, he found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cool air. How softly the turf had carpeted the 
untraveled avenue, he could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking. For now, he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. <sighs> How beautiful she is! He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with the sound like a shock of a cannon. Then, all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. All right, well, that was a occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Uh, that story was published in 1891 in the San Francisco Examiner. Uh, it's well known for its unusual time sequence, and uh, based on that is really considered one of the early examples of stream-of-consciousness writing. I'd have to say this is probably one of the most adapted short stories that you're going to come across. It's It's been done uh, in every medium from silent film to uh, television, uh, appearing in such places as Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, it's been done as radio dramas. It was even made into an opera. Um, and in fact, it's... Uh, plot of the story was was one of the inspiring factors for one of my favorite movies, The Escapist, with uh, Damian Lewis and Brian Cox, two, um, in my opinion, really, really fantastic actors. And this is, hands down, probably Ambrose Bierce's most anthologized story. Um, just about any time you see that Ambrose Bierce has a story in something, it will... It will almost always be this one, which is is good. It's it's a good story, but it's a it's a little unfortunate because he uh, he did produce a lot of a lot of fantastic work. Thank you very much for uh, for your time this evening or this afternoon or this morning. Um, who knows when you're listening to this? Like I mentioned earlier, I'm uh, I'm hoping to put out an episode about every. Uh, Every two weeks, uh, I'd, I'd like to put them uh, every two weeks. Uh, put them out every two weeks on a Monday. I would very much like uh, for you listeners to, uh, if if you're out there, I would I would love it to uh, to hear from you guys. Um, there's a, a couple of uh, easy ways to contact us. Uh, probably the easiest would be email, uh, and that is uh, bygone tales at gmail.com. Uh, that's bygone tales, one word, uh, b y g o n e t a l e s at gmail.com. Uh, we will also have a Facebook page, uh, bygone tales podcast, and the website 
can be found at McCartneyLane.com. Just click on the tab for Bygone Tales, and um, you should be able to find show notes and uh, and each episode, which uh, which will be free. Uh, this this podcast will not uh, not ever cost anything, although. Uh, in the future, it is possible that we may put out some premium episodes, maybe some longer content. In particular, I would like to do a recording of uh, Arthur, uh, Arthur Macon's The Three Imposters, if, uh, if that would be something that, uh, that you guys would be interested in. Or, uh, or maybe we could look at, uh, at serializing some, some longer content. Um, drop me a line. Let me know what, uh, what you're interested in. Uh, drop me a line. Let me know what you thought of the stories. Um, heck, drop me a line and uh, let me know if you've got any constructive criticism or uh, or even destructive criticism. Who knows? You know, I'll, I'll read just about anything. Um, I'll just be happy to hear uh, hear from you guys. Um, and uh, who knows? Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll read some of your emails on uh, on future podcasts. So uh, please, uh, if you like this, uh, if you like this content, please be in touch. And uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's call it an evening. Thank you and uh, good night. And if you've enjoyed the stories read tonight, please, by all means, check out OldStyleTales.com. All one word. You know, I I think their website says it best. Quote, Old Style Tales Press is an independent literary press which publishes crafted anthologies of classic ghost stories, tales of horror, and the supernatural from the golden age of horror fiction, 1818 to 1937. Editions featuring original illustrations, annotations, and opening and closing commentary on each story. And I have to tell you, the production quality of these books is absolutely fantastic. And really, it's a very, very attractive price point in order to purchase these. You can buy them either as ebook or as physical books that you can hold in your hand. And if you're a fan of books like I am, I know you're going to go for the physical books that you can hold in your hand. However, you can get a collection of all the ebooks that they have for a very affordable price. Please go and check them out. It's a great product that they put out. In fact, I recommend it so highly that they're not even actually promoting this show. I just really, really like their product. So check them out. OldStyleTales.com.